Hello, Greyhounds. Welcome to Ted Lasso is Life, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Duong. I'm joined by my marvelous co-host, Chrisanne Morgan. Hey there, you Greyhounds. And today we're talking about Season 3, Episode 7, The Strings That Bind Us. Before we dive in, though, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our listeners. You guys are great, and some of you last week gave some really nice comments about our discussion of the episode Sunflowers. So if you enjoy what we're doing here, we'd greatly appreciate it if you could be like Ted and give us a 5-star certified fresh review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It'd help other fans like you find us. Thanks. Alright, into this week's episode then. The Greyhounds take Ted's total football into practice, where Roy seems totally sadistic. Sam welcomes a special guest to Ola's, but some unwelcome guests get there first. Nate decides to court Jade, while Keely tells Jack to ease up with the full court press. Okay, Kevin, I just have to ask you, do you feel like they're trying to wrap it up? They've gone through the first half of the season, and now we're running into the home stretch, and nobody has really said if the show is ending or not officially. And I know, you know, Brendan is quoted in Entertainment Weekly that we're kind of in no man's land here. We're still being discombobulated by the response. And I think that could make hard-hearted old Sudeikis soften up a little bit. I'll say that whatever he decides, I will happily abide. So they're not being very forthcoming about is it actually ending, but it really feels like they're trying to wrap things up, right? I mean... When they're in the pub in the Crown and Anchor and they invite the guys, the pub lads, to the training session, Ted says to Beard that it's their team. We're just borrowing it. No coach stays with the team forever, right? And I kind of feel like that was a little reminder. I definitely felt the exact same way when I heard that. Right? So I was like, oh no. And because everything is done so intentionally, I expect that to mean something. So. If it's the end, so be it. I've loved it. I'm so glad it happened. I'm, you know, I'll be sad, but I'm really grateful that that we had it. But it definitely feels like the swan song. I loved the opening montage because for me, a person who loves the movie You've Got Mail, it was a direct homage to that movie. The exact same song. Exact same song. Everybody, all the businesses were opening up everything. And because I am the nerd that I am, I actually watched the original film that Nora Ephron remade, which is called Shop Around the Corner by Ernst Lubitsch. The premise of that is not unlike You Got Mail in that it's, you know, the love of your life might be standing right next to you in an elevator or maybe annoying you to death. And it's really interesting to me, too, because later in the episode, Nate's dad actually says, Let's go down to the corner shop to get ice cream. I have a feeling that Rebecca might start to see the signs. I definitely feel like it's a Ted Becca indicator. What do you think of my theory? Well, you know, I'm always game to talk Ted Becca theories. And a great one that Evie on Twitter pointed out was that when Ted was explaining the origin of using the red string and how Japanese culture, they believe that soulmates are tied with an invisible one. Both Ted and Rebecca were wearing the exact same shade of red in this episode. Hmm, fascinating. I have more on that later in the episode. So since we're talking about this infamous red string, then what did you make of the whole thing? Because I definitely had some dissenters in my Instagram comments saying that this was like ridiculous, over the top. And I think one person even said, how could comedy stoop so low? 
My thoughts about it were that it was possibly the bodiest, naughtiest Ted Lasso episode that ever was, and that Phoebe Walsh is a very wicked lady, <laughs> but I'm here for it. Like, I, I didn't really have a pegging joke on my Ted Lasso bingo card, but I fully support it. I thought it was very funny. I loved that they went blue, and I don't feel like it was done cheaply, though. Although I found the string thing ridiculous, I think as a sports fan, almost even more ridiculous to me was having an open practice, several open practices when the team is trying new strategy. One thing that I thought back to was in season two at the beginning when Jamie's trying to come back to the team and he meets with Ted in the pub and then the pub lads like almost instantly upload a picture of the two of them onto Twitter. So who's to say that nobody at the practice would have said, oh my God, I'm at the Richmond practice. They're trying this complete new strategy. Like that just seems. It was crazy. I'm actually surprised that somebody didn't post on Twitter or, you know, the press didn't get a hold of it and run with it. Like, could you imagine the next game, Chris Powell and Arlo White sitting up in the commenters box saying, is it the lasso way to have people tie their dinglings together? And then having Chris Powell react to that, like, oh my gosh, the lasso way. Tie a red string around uh, your old oak tree. Although I am a little troubled at Roy's sadistic left turn. <laughs> I mean, I thought he was grumpy and curmudgeonly and I thought he was stubborn, but I'm a little worried about Roy's direction in life. He's either going to get like a head coaching gig or he's going to get thrown in the clink. I'm concerned. A really relevant line in the beginning of the episode was when they were about to start the presentation and Ted said, Roy's going to make things dark. That was kind of literal and a bit of foreshadowing i was wondering where they were going to take that to go back to roy's sadistic streak you'll remember a few episodes ago when they were talking about potentially beating up what they thought was henry's bully and roy goes on and on and on and on and on and on, and on about the color red and using rope this is kind of similar since string and rope and still the color red Right. He talked about soaking the rope in blood and making it red. And now he has come up with this crazy strategy of tying a red string to everybody. This is clearly one of the consequences of having Roy split up from Keeley because Keeley's able to humanize him. And then when they're together, they hang with Phoebe, who does an even better job of humanizing him. So without the two of them, he just looks, for lack of better words, fucking mental. He does look mental. And I miss Phoebe being on the show. We haven't seen enough of her this season. We literally haven't seen her since the first episode, the premiere of season three. I know. There's a lot we haven't seen in this season that I'm kind of sad about. So although I found the red string thing ridiculous, there were some really funny moments, especially when Danny and Isaac swapped roles and then they swapped impressions as well. Yes, I thought that was so funny. I also loved the Will and Beard switcheroo. I thought that was so funny because he just does the let's go so perfectly. <laughs> and <laughs> Beard fumbling the water bottles. Oh my God, that was hilarious. It was so good. Speaking of fumbling, can't forget Higgins fumbling his tea when Isaac just smokes the corner into the window. I kind of also love how everybody got so into it. I love how everybody just so gleefully kind of switched, which made me a little sad that Jamie didn't have somebody to switch with, but it felt like the team was so cohesive. It felt like the team was kind of like really cemented together, which didn't feel 
as strong when Zava was around. I don't like to toot my horn too much, but I feel like kind of right about that. No, I think you're right. We were, we pegged this whole Zava thing and they're coming around. Not that kind of pegging though. <laughs> it's on my brain now. I can't help it. It's stuck in my head. And I have to be honest, the Midwestern girl in me did wince a little bit when I, <laughs> when Beard said that, but the rest of his speech, I love, 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 loved. Oh my God. It was so great listening to him. When Beard is making his presentation and he's talking about total football being jazz, as I mentioned last, last week, the episode felt like jazz to me. It's Motown, it's Mamet, it's Pinter, it's Einstein, it's Curie, it's Gaga. I read on the internet that Beard was probably referring to a specific movement that Gaga is known for in her choreography. When Ted was talking about how he got his mustache, Ted saying that he couldn't have a, a beard because we would look like a ZZ Top cover band. And Roy saying <laughs> that they would be called sharp-dressed men and all of the, the puns that Roy then came out with that were so Ted and Ted in his head. I thought it was hilarious. It was so funny to me. I loved it too. Besides the puns being incredible, what I loved about it was it reminded me of early in season one where Ted says, just wait till we win him over. And Beer's like, He'll be furious. He was absolutely furious, but I wish I could go back and watch anew when Roy says Asquatch. Like if I could have that moment over and over again, I would be so happy. So of course, right after that, Jamie explains to the team what they're doing wrong about the whole total football strategy. And that was just a superb scene all around, especially them starting it by re-invoking the signal the signal yes and i love how trent is all confused at the beginning but then he kind of does like a sneaky like scratching his chin giving the finger <laughs> i thought that was really cute and i love that like jamie's arc has taken him so far you know ted really has gotten to him ted has really transformed his outlook because Jamie, if you remember in season one, when Ted told him that you think you're, you know, you think you're so special that you think you're one in a million, but you forget that you're just one of 11. Like I said last week, stop stealing my shit, Chrisanne. Well, I'm glad great minds think alike, right? But like, think about it. Jamie really helped them understand what they needed to do on the field. And basically it was like, don't play to me, play through me exactly exactly and oh my god that accent just kills me i think that they missed an opportunity to not have him talk about the gift that jack gave keely but i really love that they're letting us see the jamie who's a total prick right but also giving us this really bright hilarious like phil dunster is just magic right like he's just a magical unicorn Phil Dunster plays Jamie so amazingly well. He's just superb, right? And it's like we get to see Jamie being snarky and cracking jokes, you know, when he was like, I was robbed when they were talking about his, his Love Island departure. He's so lovable. You know, Phil makes him so lovable. And I love where his storyline has taken him. And he's just so wonderful now, you know? I've said before that in season one, I absolutely hated Jamie, but now he's become one of my favorites. I never hated him. I always loved how cocky he was. I just thought it was funny. So one of our listeners, Allison, 
tweeted a really astute observation that when Roy had his revised red string thing with multiple strings tied to one dick, that formation was almost exactly what Jamie had in the end when he's explaining why total football didn't work. So I thought that was pretty cool. That is really astute. I agree too. It really did. So considering how they were training for total football with the red strings, and then the bloody gorgeous goal, as Arlo called it, one could say that Jamie ended up pulling all the strings. And he definitely made a lot of extra passes. I'm so excited to see how he's going to unfold as the quote-unquote conductor and how the team will play moving forward now that Jamie is kind of stepping into that leadership role. And even more dangerous as a player since he doesn't just score now, but he can also pass and facilitate the offense. I like the way that Ted was describing the functions that everybody needed to know what everybody else needed. It also was very improvisational. Everything that Jason said in his speech as Ted about how total football works is exactly improv. What does this situation need? I was like, yes. And I come to that as an improviser, by the way. If you all are wondering why the heck I, I talk about improvisation, it's because I was a total improv geek when I first came to Los Angeles and I spent many, many, many an hour performing, learning improvisation here in Los Angeles. Relax there, Hollywood. All right, all right. <laughs> so even though Richmond lost 3-1 to Arsenal, seems like the fictional world is the only place Arsenal can win these days. I'm saying that as a newly rejoined Arsenal supporter. Both Arlo and, more emphatically, Trent think that the team has turned a corner with this new strategy. And before we get into what Trent said, I just love how, based on Amsterdam, with his leopard print shoe, and then today with his hand, doors are not safe to be completely closed when Trent crims on the case. Please, people, don't smash Trent in one of the doors. We don't need an injured journalist. He won't be able to write. So the way Trent puts it, it's pretty logical how the team was able to finally get this total football strategy to work, even though, as Roy talked about it initially, they thought it was going to take months to implement. So what I'm getting at is, if you can believe that Last Away came together over three seasons of, quote, thousands of imperceptible moments, then the same logic can apply to a potential Ted and Rebecca romance. Like, I understand if some people don't like it, that's fine, but the one thing I don't want to hear is that it came out of nowhere because this has been bubbling since the beginning. Totally rough week for Sam between getting into a Twitter beef with the terrible home secretary and having his restaurant trashed, having his dad come and being nervous about him seeing the trash restaurant and then blowing up about it in the locker room and then having to tie his penis to his teammates penis and run around on the pitch. I mean, I think that's a lot for anybody to handle. But honestly, with the whole Sam arc, I thought it was just amazing. I really enjoy that they handle important topics the way that they handle them. I just really give them a lot of credit for, you know, tackling the issue of racism and xenophobia in sports and society, because I really do feel like Sam's meltdown in the locker room really address what it feels like for, you know, to be treated like a hero when he does, does something on the pitch and then told to go back where you came from when he falls short. And I think that if you take a look at professional athletes of color or, you know, from other places, Africa, 
Middle East and and people who play in Europe that I feel like this kind of abuse you hear about happening quite regularly. And, you know, not to mention things like people throwing bananas onto the pitch. So I feel like it was a lot deeper than just Sam getting into a, a political Twitter fight. There's violence and hostility that gets directed towards people of color when they when they take a stand about something, right? Anyway, violence against people of color has a really long and awful history in the United States. And it's continuing. It's still happening in 2023. I just, I love that they address this stuff. And I really wish that in the year 2023, this was no longer happening, but I love that they're bringing it to light in a show like Ted Lasso because it appeals to so many people and maybe the message will actually break through and people will hear it. So I mentioned online that this episode made me cry multiple times. And the first one was when Sam had the locker room outburst. And one of the main reasons was I knew exactly what real life stories this plot was pulling from. So when the secretary told him to shut up and dribble, that's something that conservative TV host Laura Ingram directed to LeBron James and Kevin Durant, both black players, after they criticized the previous president. However, when Drew Brees, a white quarterback, made political comments, she said that he's allowed to have an opinion. And then when Sam was making the comment about when he fucks up or misses a penalty, then people are going to turn on him. That was referring to the three black players for England's football team who missed penalties in the Euro 2020 final. Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho, and Bukayo Saka. You might recognize those names because when Jason showed up to the season two premiere, he wore an all black shirt with the names of those players on them to support them. So what happened after they missed the penalties was people from their own country started just throwing torrents of abuse at them online with monkey emojis and other horrendous racial comments. Some people even got arrested for it. So this shit is definitely really real. And speaking of real, Tahib was absolutely incredible. Like I was shaking almost as much as he was just incredible work. And because he's always so mild-mannered and cheerful, it really, it really was a, a resting performance. You know, he really just made you feel it so much. It felt that much more profound. And then, of course, when Ola shows up and he collapses into his dad's arms, it's just, I turned into a waterfall in that moment. I just cried my face off. Over the seasons when they've had Sam communicate with his father, Ola, to me, at least, they almost like created this air of like mythical quality about him. And he almost delivered exactly that with his performance, I thought. Oh, my God. Yeah. Nanso Anozi, I hope I'm pronouncing that correct, is so magical. I've loved him for so long, but he's so perfect as Sam's father and his presence. He's this big man and he just hugs his son. And oh, it was so beautiful to see. Mythical, yeah. The mythical, amazing dad in a series about crappy dads. Well, that's another reason why he seems more mythical, because he's the only good one out of the lot. I love that when he talks to Sam about what happened, he tells him not to fight back, but to fight forward. I mean, not only do I love this show so much for addressing this and addressing it so wonderfully and so beautifully, I mean, it's such a hard thing for people to take in and talk about. But they did it so amazingly well that I just, I can't love this show more. I can't. I don't, I mean, I'm sure next week I'm going to say that again, but it was just such a, a beautiful way that they did that. 
So then to have Sam, you know, after having lost his faith in humanity, take his dad to the restaurant and the restaurant that's, you know, completely vandalized by racist thugs. And he walks in to see the entire team restoring it and putting it back together and painting it and making it right again. So probably the best part of that whole scene was how the whole episode they're learning about total football and what the different principles are. And then they reapply it to real life where it probably matters more. What does the situation need right now? And they thought it needed the team. That's so beautiful. I'm getting a little teary-eyed now. <laughs> Just fucking beautiful, man. Fucking beautiful. And especially since Jamie was one of the ones who was talking about it. And I loved when Ola saw the sign that said Ola's. The look on his face was so beautiful and wonderful. And then, and then he takes over the chef's kitchen because he can. He just walks in and he's going to cook dinner. I thought that was amazing. How about that incredibly cringy moment between Ola and Rebecca, where you can tell that they're looking at one another and they know things about one another and they're kind of conveying that without conveying that. And they're definitely communicating. But should we maybe just have Sam, I mean, my last thing about the whole Sam situation is maybe we should have him get off Twitter. <laughs> Log out of Twitter. A wise man once said, never tweet. Guess who never tweets? The man, the myth. Jason Sudeikis. So the Nate Shelley rehabilitation tour is in full swing, but I really don't feel like Nate has, has really earned himself a second chance yet. And to be honest, I really expected Nate to expect a rate. And that's a little bit of Ted Lasso brain rot for everybody. Is anybody else shouting at their television? Was that just me? <laughs> Were you guys yelling, don't do it? I kind of thought he wouldn't, but there was a moment that I was like, oh my God, is he going to do it? Because they extended that moment for such a long time. And, you know, I mean, ultimately, Nate will come back into the fold and, you know, we're going to like Nate. If he really is on his comeback tour, his Nate actually changed. You know, it's like he certainly is still a bit full of himself if his Siri uh, referring to him as Wonderkind. I mean, it seems pretty clear that they want us to like him again. They want us to think that he is growing. I mean, it's an interesting metric of measurement, him not spitting in himself in the mirror. But I really do feel like he needs to acknowledge the hurt that he's caused and he needs to admit his wrongdoings to the people who really helped him get where he is now, who, who fought for him and who gave him his opportunity. I mean, he wouldn't be a coach at West Ham if it wasn't for Ted. And he also really hasn't had a lot of challenges. He hasn't really had a lot of those challenging moments that would cause him to grow. We haven't seen him really get rock bottom or maybe we have. Maybe the ripping of the Believe poster was rock bottom for Nate. But I do feel like he needs to make amends, and I hope that they give that to us in the, in the coming episodes. Do you agree? I do, and just to remind fans who aren't that into football, every team in the Premier League plays every other team home and away. So since we've been at West Ham away, we'll get them at Nelson Road. And of course, there's also that shot of the trailer with Ted and Henry with Beard at what looks like to be a West Ham game. So possibly another potential point of interaction for them and for Nate to make amends. I will say the one thing that Nate does better than anybody else on the entire show is, is weaving a tale of his own personal demise better than anyone else. 
I love it. I think it's hilarious when he's talking about what will happen if, G <laughs> if he asks Jade out all the potential terrible things. Like at the Kensington Street urchin. I love that about Nate. I think it's so funny. And the way that Nick Muhammad delivered those lines. So since we're talking about Nate's redemption, I like to think that the line he said to his sister and his mom that I've missed red signals from women before that it was a callback to when he mistakenly kissed Keely. I have to say that even though Nate has been so weird to Jade, the storyline about his dad giving his mom that beautiful map and then him making the really adorable box to ask her out was so sweet and touching. I mean, I love that we got a glimpse of the Nate of old and I hope that Nate comes back more and more. Good God, was the whole stuck in Jade situation just a little bit weird. He's just been so weird to her. And if you don't see the complete picture of, of all the cute little things that go on in the background, imagine it from like her point of view. <laughs> some, some egotistical stalker trying to ask her out on a date. To be fair, it does seem like she has feelings for him. Besides agreeing to the date, the one time where Nate didn't look through the window, she came out to look for him. That's true. She did. It must be nice to have that kind of attention. I mean, anybody likes when someone likes them. And I, I do kind of feel like he won her over by being so real with her and so authentic after the Anastasia ditched him. Maybe all he had to do was compliment her restaurant's uh, baklava because it was divine. Talk to the ladies the way your grand speaks to you. It's a hit every time. Lady killer. So since you're a woman, Kristen, I have to ask, so if someone who you weren't really that familiar with decided to give you a detailed diorama to ask you out, would that be cute or creepy? I think it would be cute because the effort, it's so romantic. I mean, I loved the whole box thing. I loved it. I thought it was sweet. And I would not be upset if somebody made me something cute like that to ask me out on a date. Jade is so fucking funny, though, like when she said, I hope there wasn't anything alive in that, was there? <laughs> I love her so much. Adina Budnick is just, oh, she's so good. But back to your question, I would dig it. I would dig that. I thought the, the map situation was just remarkably romantic and lovely. And it's such a rom-com thing to do, too. The Shelleys certainly have their way of wooing. To your point earlier about Nate and his Siri, a really cool thing that one of our listeners, Steph, found out was that if you ask Siri, how can you tell if a girl really likes you or is just being nice to you? It replies with three pretty funny answers. So in case this still doesn't work by the time you release or you don't have an iPhone, some of the answers included, oh, Wonderkind, when will you ever learn? Ask Nate to do the exact opposite of what he says. And well, definitely don't ask Nate. And of course, this is just one of, in a long line of fun product integrations, especially with the various playlists like Roy's Mad at Keeley and Ted's Locker Room Jams. Well, I think that most people would agree with me that Rebecca and Keeley banter is the best. It really never disappoints. But they didn't pass the Bechdel test this week, which was kind of shocking. For those of you who don't know what the Bechdel test is, it's just a way of evaluating whether or not a film or other work of fiction portrays women in a way that's sexist or is characterized by gender stereotyping. And in order to pass the Bechdel test, the work has to feature at least two women 
and they meet, need to be talking to each other and their conversation must concern something other than a man. Now I know Jack isn't technically a man, but they don't, they don't pass the test. I'm actually a bit disappointed because I feel like Rebecca and Keely are, are almost stuck in this place where all they do is, and all they did in this episode was just talk about their love lives. You know, so many of the guys and, you know, the team came together, but the women all kind of seem to be on their own out in the world. So like some non-love life stuff they could have mentioned was like, Keely firing Shandy is probably the first time she's done that. And Clearly, she was uncomfortable, so they could have worked through like how she could have done better or do it in the future. And of course, Rebecca infamously fired the previous manager, George, in a hilarious way, so there could have been some fun out of that. Rebecca firing George is so perfect, so funny. And Rebecca didn't fire Ted. Maybe they could have talked about that. But as Jeremy said earlier to Ted in the pub, she's humanized him and lost all objectivity. So I've heard this theory and I read this theory that maybe Barbara is the Higgins to Jack's Rupert. Do you see that maybe being a thing? Do you think that Babs has seen Jack go from company to company and maybe has created a little bit of uh, drama with love bombing certain people along the way and she's been kind of a cover? Do you think she knows? Well, I think she definitely knew when she saw the book and like you said, she's worked at many different companies for Jack, so it's definitely possible. My question is, how many red flags need to be thrown down on the pitch in order for Kelly to realize that she needs to run in the other direction, right? She was so good at setting boundaries with Jamie, and she was so great with her, you know, owning up and being accountable with Roy, but she seems like she's completely clueless about Jack. It's like she just doesn't see it happening. And I feel like if it were a man, we'd see it happening a little bit better. So what's that about? Well, I think Rory was Keely's first real serious relationship. So she's probably still getting over that. And maybe just prefers to have a companion rather than to be alone. That's definitely possible. And you know what? I see that. I see that definitely interesting to me that Keely has decided not to talk to Rebecca about how she feels, being that she's talking to Rebecca so much about Jack, and she talked to Rebecca so much about Roy previously, but she really seems like she's not talking about it. And of course, we know that Rebecca's not really one to get themselves in the middle of the mix between partners and say anything, because you never say anything. But I do love that Rebecca confirmed for everybody that they didn't have sex, but that they had something that transcended sex. I liked that confirmation. Plus another mention of Gazelleg. Gazelleg, yes. That was wonderful. But again, she also regrets not getting to see his penis, which I think this is just the most penis-centric episode of Ted Lasso that I've ever imagined it could be. Not only did I not have Pegging on my bingo card. I really, I didn't have this amount of D on my, on my Ted Lasso list, um, but I'm not disappointed. This episode was penis palooza. It really was. I mean, Juno Temple and Hannah Waddingham are magic together. I just love them. I love their relationship. I love how they play off one another, but having them not talk about anything but their love lives kind of really disappointed me. Another really interesting thing is that for some reason in this episode, 
they're dressing Keely in some of the worst outfits I've ever seen. She just, she almost looks like a cartoon character of herself. I've always loved so much of what Keely wore, but right now she just, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but Keely is definitely on this trajectory that is, feels more caricature than, than authentic. And I'm a little disappointed in that. And you know, I'm not a hater and I don't like to criticize, but I'm kind of bummed out, right? And I just, I don't know why they've taken us down this road. I don't understand. I mean, you agree with me that Jack is just kind of a a little bump in the road on her way back to Roy, right? Like she's headed back to Roy. To quote Keely herself, absolutely. And now that we know, you know, the show is comparing Jack to Rupert, you know that that's not going to end well. I guess we'll wait and see if Jack has also gone to the Edwin Akufu school of disgraceful departures. As a woman, I just, I want more for the female characters. They were on such a great arc last, last season. I want them to get back on the arc. So how about those red flags though? I mean, it seems like Keely isn't quite seeing it, or maybe she is now that Rebecca's helping to point it out to her a little bit, but. My goodness, do you really want to be with somebody who says that they're getaway with murder rich and likens themselves to everybody associated with Epstein? That would give me pause. Or saying so many times that they're not crazy that they could very well be crazy. Absolutely. The book, the ring and the croissant, the daisies, so many daisies. Which some people on Twitter point out was another callback to You've Got Mail since in that movie, Kathleen Kelly, her favorite flowers were daisies. And of course, they're the same for Keely. I cringed kind of when Jack just went out into the office and announced that they were together because it just feels so, it just felt overwhelming. I mean, so many red flags. There's not really much more that I could say about it. Just that, Keely, Keely, run, run the other way. I also think some of the magic of the show is that we all root for these people as though they're like actual real people, even <laughs> though they're not. Which is why it kind of bothers me sometimes when some of the plots get a bit too cartoony, like with the whole red string thing. Yeah, there's definitely some moments that are a little over the top. And now it's time for our favorite part of the podcast, the awards. Chrisanne and I are both nice people and we love Ted Lasso. So each week we give awards in a variety of fun categories. First up, MVP. MVP! MVP! Well, for me, it's one Mr. Jamie Tart because of his willingness to just sacrifice all of his ego in order to be in service to the team in order to make the magic happen. Jamie is just so amazing and you have to love Phil, but I do really feel like Jamie's arc is so wonderful and I'm so excited to see how his role as conductor and catalyst is going to play out for the rest of this season. I totally agree with you and a little thing that I noted was that when they did the whole swap thing, Jamie got himself and he actually kind of seemed disappointed that he didn't get a switch with someone. Yeah. Because like Ted had told him in season one that he was just one of 11. And he really is just one of 11 now. And that was so such a brilliant kind of callback to that, I thought. Touching, really. 
I did want to give an honorary shout out to Ola. In Brian McGrubb's power rankings for the week, he aptly said that Ola feels like one of those dudes who can say everything will be okay and have people believe in both instantly and completely. Like, of course, when Sam had that outburst in the locker room, as soon as he saw his father and fell into his arms for probably the best hug he could ask for, it just seemed like all his problems disappeared, even just for a few moments. And he definitely deserves a mention for the dance he did at the end of the episode, because come on. And you got to be a pretty big boss to kick a chef out of their own kitchen. <laughs> yes, chef. Now for the other side of the spectrum, the wanker of the week. Let's see what we got here. Wanker. For me, the wanker of the week award goes to Rupert 2.0 Jack for defacing a signed first edition. If we're if we believe that that's actually true, and there are reasons that it might not actually be true that I'll touch on later because I have a theory about it. But who buys a rare first edition and then defaces it with you go girl telling Keely that she did that because she gets jealous? Like. Oh my God, Keely, run, run, run away as fast as you can. Not only just for the book. I mean, I'm a huge bibliophile, but whoa, who does that? Total wanker move. For me, I think this tweet sums it up best by Tara on Twitter. Pour one out for everyone who has to explain to their parents what pegging is after they watch Ted Lasso. <laughs> Causing quite the uncomfortable conversations this week, the writing team. Beard obviously probably won't need to have that conversation with his mother. She leaves her vibrator on her nightstand. <laughs> she walks on the wild side. She knows what pegging is. Our next award celebrates proficiency in profanity, excellence in expletives, virtuosity in vulgarities. It's the Roy Kent Cussing Award. Fun. That's fun, isn't it? For me, this award goes to May. When she tells Richard, the pub patron, to fuck off the way that she did it, it was so beautiful and so powerful and so satisfying. My award goes to Coach Beard when he told Will to get the fuck out of my chair. I loved the whole Beard-Will switcheroo. It's pretty relatable, too, because I'm sure we have places in our homes that we prefer to sit in, and then sometimes when you have a party or guests over and they take your seat, in your mind, you're probably maybe thinking that. Oh my God, there's totally a spot on my sofa that I sit all the time and nobody dares take my seat. So you're Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory? Essentially. Now for the You're Gonna Make Me Cry award. And I think this is probably the toughest for this week since there were a lot of emotional moments in this one. So many emotional moments. For me, it was the image of the whole team pitching in to clean up the vandalized restaurant, right? It got me right in the heart. They just, they banded together to repair the restaurant and enjoy a meal together. It just made my heart happy. So there were tears of joy, but they definitely, it definitely made me cry. That's my pick too. And when I was having discussion on someone with Twitter about when and where we cried exactly, they listed the start of the scene and then the end when Ola finds out the restaurant was named after him. But for me, I was crying the entire time, so I don't know if that counts as one or two separate cries. It's so great to cry during Ted Lasso, too. So cathartic. It's my favorite thing to do. So just another thing to point out Jamie's growth. You remember that when Nate made the box for the team to contribute for Sam's birthday present, 
Jamie infamously put a fucking wankerish wad of gum into it so that it'll smell nice. And look at him now. Being such a team player. Such a good guy. And now for... I've always funnier than Step Brothers. Award. What was the most hilarious scene, line, moment for you? Well, you kind of awarded it another award, but I love Will's beard impression and Beard's Will impression. When Will does the let's go, and then Beard does the get the fuck out of my chair with Will in his chair with the feet up. I thought that was just so funny. I forgot to tell Chip when I interviewed him, but one of the reasons I got hooked onto his page was that at one point he had like profiles of a lot of them supporting players and like his own experiences of why they were such like awesome actors or people. And for his profile of Charlie Hiscock, who plays Will the Kitman, he said, I love Charlie. I'm going to say it. I think Charlie may be the funniest person we have on our show. And that is saying a lot. I don't know if I can necessarily agree with what Chip said, but I think that with the whole Coach Beard, Will Kitman switcheroo, definitely got some credence to it now. Yeah, Charlie Hiscock is really funny. Love him. So since we did agree, I'll give out another honorary shout out. So Rebecca was teasing Keely about not being able to stand up to Jack's full court press. Keely goes, if she tries to pay, then I'll give her. And Rebecca says, you'll give her what? And then Keely responds with, just the tip. Oh, that was funny. They talked about penises so much in this episode. It was penis palooza. Penis palooza. And now for the award that's all about fashion. She's fucking fat. This week, we had a lot of contenders. My very favorite was Rebecca's beautiful dress. Honorable mention, Trent Crim's kick-ass t-shirt collection. And I have to say that I love Jamie's pink sweatsuit. What's with all the pink in the episodes lately? What does it mean? What do you think it means? And last but not least, since I'm a writer and I love Ted Lasso, it's Kevin's kick-ass line of the week. And I'm awarding to Ola for saying, don't fight back, fight forward. Hear, hear. If Ted was in the room for when he said it, I believe he'd say something like, ooh, Ola's got bars. And now it's time for my corner kick, y'all. I read Jack Phipps' Vulture article this week, and in it, he breaks down a little bit about the copy of Sense and Sensibility. First of all, we all know that Keely would be more of an Emma fan. Everybody on the internet agrees. It's so true. But I love that Sense and Sensibility came up in the episode because of its romantic overtones as well. And you can definitely see parallels to this episode and the show in Sense and Sensibility. But... He wrote, Jack, that copy of Sense and Sensibility belongs in a museum, not defaced in a misguided act of affection. And he continues not to be pedantic, but it's unlikely that even someone as rich as Jack could get their hands on a signed first edition of that book, because there probably aren't any signed editions, because first of all, Jane Austen didn't sign things, they're pretty rare. And Sense and Sensibility wasn't published under Austen's name, it was just attributed to a lady. The first episode also was three volumes, not one. And in 2020, there was one that was believed to be one of a thousand copies that sold for $81,000. So it's not that Jack couldn't have afforded that, but the book that Jack gave Keeley was clearly a forgery, or they're just taking creative liberties, of course. But I loved that. Jack Phipps wrote about that in his review because that's such a good deep cut. And you know how I love my deep cuts. 
All right, now it's time for added time. The final whistle is about to blow on this episode, so we're hitting you with some of our final thoughts on the episode. One of my favorite scenes was when they did the all hands in cheer. Four on three. One, two, three, four. I mean, it was so silly. It's so hilarious. I thought it was clever. Yeah, it was very clever. And you know Trent Crimm's book is definitely going to be called The, the Lasso, Lasso Way. <laughs> so during the match, you might have noticed that the Arsenal goal scorer who had a hat trick was Hamilton which is the Chip Hamilton that's the coordinate producer on the show and also Jason's assistant. I've actually interviewed Chip, and towards the end of the interview, he explained a really great story of how he became an Arsenal supporter. Fun fact, this episode was originally called Boxes, which, after having watched it, would have been almost kind of random. There was the one scene where when Isaac's taking the corner and then Ted saying how he was a center back that was boxed in and blah, 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 but... Considering so much of the episode dealt with the strings, I think The Strings That Bind Us definitely was a better title in the end. Another fun little deep cut is that Sam saying he needs a, a Ray Liotta in reference to the scene from Goodfellas, where he manages to get himself a table magically in a packed club on the first date with his future wife. Let's Ray Liotta a table for Ola. Just another cool reference. As for references within the show, I enjoyed the callback to roasting Danny. So in this episode, Ted asked, if Danny moves back on defense, it means what? And Colin replied with, hell has frozen over. You might recall in the Liverpool episode when Nate was roasting the team, he said, Danny, if football is life, well, then your defense is death. Such a good callback. As for a more dramatic callback, of course, Ted walks in on Sam and his father, Ola which was a heartwarming moment. But of course, the previous father-son behind closed door situation was heartbreaking when in the season one finale, Jamie Tart's dad was verbally and physically abusing him. And the final fun one, you might remember there was a short but pretty elaborate scene of water bottles going around. Well, both Charlie Hiscock, a.k.a. Will Kitman, and editor AJ Catling confirmed that they did that in one take. So give it up for your greyhounds. Wow, that's completely amazing. That was so cool. Talented people over there at the Ted Lasso show. And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we greatly appreciate it if you could be like Ted and give us a five-star certified fresh review. It's the easiest and free way to support us. And for more of my content, follow me on Instagram at Ted Lasso is Life. I'm the most comprehensive Ted Lasso page out there with videos, news, fun facts, analysis, and of course, memes. Until next time, Greyhounds, onward, forward.